To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch buck? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, it's happening, guys. Man, got a good podcast coming for you today. So um, I have on James Yates. Uh, so you may have seen that name come across your feed as this year he killed one of the largest deer ever killed off the Wasatch Front. Um, so it's rare in a podcast that you hear somebody killing this giant 200 and plus inch deer and then telling you the unit he killed it in. But the Wasatch Front... Uh, it has so much hunting pressure there. It's one of the toughest units to kill these large bucks. And um, James James's story is just fascinating. Uh, you know, it was an accident that he killed this giant buck. He had um, like 36 or 40 days chasing this deer and passing up other nice bucks uh, while he was hunting this one. Uh, he also had six nights where he spent the whole night out checking cameras. And he talks about this buck uh, living in cover where he's really tough to keep tabs on. And so uh, talks about, uh, you know, keeping tabs on these trail cameras, Buck's location, and then really learning this Buck, learning where this Buck summers and where this Buck winters. And it's just a an awesome story. And he finally gets a chance at this Buck on the very last day of the season. So uh, it's amazing conversation. And you also get to hear he's got such an engineer's mind, the way he thinks about things. And we start off right in the middle of the, the conversation. I just had to press record as we're talking about arrow weights, how he runs two different arrows in his quiver. And he talks about the advantages and disadvantages of both. And it's just fascinating. Range forgiveness and talks about uh, the, the penetration of a fixed blade and, um, arrow weights. And you can tell he just analyzes all this information and really wor works with his equipment, uh, to find the best setup for him. So, uh, if, if you don't follow him, you need to on IG, he's got a great page and it puts out this great information on like long muzzleloader shooting and, um, on his archery setup and, and on his layering system for clothing. You know, one thing we touch on, on the podcast, but, um, how you got to just be so tough to hunt in that cold. It takes a different kind of toughness. Uh, it's brutal when it gets down, you know, below freezing or below zero. And then he's slow playing this buck a lot where he's sitting still a lot and he's not building fires. And so, uh, he does this piece on his, um, Instagram about his layering system. So just great information and a great humble dude. You'll hear in the podcast, he gives credit to every one of his buddies that has helped on this. And, um, yeah, just a, a, a really good guy and a really good hunter and happy that I got to meet him and have him on the podcast for us all to hear the conversation. It's a great one. So I want to thank Sitka Gear. Um, so James Yates is also using Sitka Gear for his layering systems for hunting these late season cold weather hunts. And I do the same. Uh, Sitka has a layering system for every type of terrain, every type of uh, of temperature or habitat that you're going to be in. Uh, they have, um, you know, I always talk about their hot weather gear. I do so many of these early season hunts in, in August and early September and having that ascent pant and having that lightweight hoodie shirt to be able to cover up and get out of the sun. Uh, when I'm in the high country, like high country mule deer, 13,000 feet, that sun beeps down on me up there and there, there isn't much to hide behind. Uh, so having that hood, being able to cover up my ears and the back of my neck, 
and also have a shirt that just breathes. Uh, the the wind blows right through that stuff and helps cool me down. And they have everything from from that hunt to mid season hunting in September and October to these late season hunts in November and December uh, that help keep me warm. A good insulating layers. Uh, great weight to them it's just great technical mountaineering gear and like i say they have a system for every place that you'll go hunt and i absolutely loves it love it it uh it keeps me out there longer Uh, it keeps me safe in the mountains and keeps me comfortable so i can keep doing what i love and that's chasing big critters so uh if you're in the market for some new gear make sure to check out sika hunting clothing with that over there at eastman's um I'm going to run over to the office and record some podcasts with those guys. Uh, they've had an amazing hunting season, so it'd be good to sit down face-to-face and talk to them. Uh, get Guy on there. He's so knowledgeable about the western states and hunting. Um, so, yeah, really excited to run over there here in the next couple weeks, record some podcasts for that. I've got some good podcasts coming up. I've got uh, one with my buddy Dylan Ness coming up that killed um, his best bull to date and a good buck. And um, I hunted with him this season, so we tell some good stories. It's a great podcast. And, um, yeah, you can check out. I'll be, I'll be having a, uh, another couple videos coming out. But Beyond the Grid has been putting out awesome content lately. So Dan Picard and Guy Eastman run that. It's the internet TV show. You can find it by searching Eastman's Hunting TV on YouTube. It's got that latest Idaho hunt that um, I was on. So that early season desert hunt. Um, so that's a great one. You can check that one out. Um, and thank you guys for, for everybody that did check it out and did watch it. I know James also mentioned it on the podcast. Super nice of him that he checked that out, but yeah, a lot of good things going on over there at Eastman's, uh, the new Eastman's bow hunting journal just came out. I just released, a uh, an article or I have an article in it that talks about next level e-scouting such a, a major piece to the puzzle, uh, in today's day and age is finding these new spots and, and finding, uh, these game rich locations that, that, that uh, we can get opportunities and get stocks and get plays. So uh, just finishing up that um, hunt I had down in the desert. It's just amazing. Had it with my buddy Dan, um, able to kill that that really nice big frame buck. Um, just super grateful, super ha- super happy. I mean, it's just such a great adventure down in the desert in January. I just love that place and just makes my mind race with possibilities of future years and going down to these places and really chasing some of these these big, heavy, dark horn mule deer, um, just absolutely had a riot. So I'll put together a podcast for you guys on that hunt as well. There's just like these certain specific tactics to this desert country to find in the deer populations. Cause there's miles and miles that don't have any deer. And then there's pockets of them and it's, it's being able to go to a new place and find these pockets and dial it in and then eventually find some, some good mature bucks and time the rut, right? So Man, it was just awesome. So now it's just back to training and and tag season and getting ready for this 2021 season. I couldn't be more excited and and couldn't be more excited to share it with you guys. So thanks for the support. Let's get into this podcast. It's a great one. So James Yates, uh, Eastman's Elevated. I'm your host, Brian Barney. Here we go. I thought that was really interesting, like your two different... Uh, arrow weights and really got me thinking like I had to think about it for a while and I'm like okay it makes sense like he's shooting um you know that really heavy fixed blade arrow for brushing things and he's got all his fixed pins set for those and then he's got his mover pin set for his long distance shooting you know and then to get both of those arrows to tune like that 
and spend the time with them. Um, yeah, I think that's 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 like your engineer mind at work, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that that arrow kind of came about. Both those are, you know, I I kind of subscribe to both, you know, both views of thought there with the arrows, and I can't deny that a heavy arrow with a stout fixed blade is going to penetrate better. It's, you know, I've that that kind of came out at a necessity. I've I've shot three elk shoulders. So I've, I haven't bow hunted that long. I've rifle hunted all my life, but I've bow hunted since 2013. It's when I first picked up a compound bow. And in 2013, I kind of went all all in on bow hunting. Um, had such a great, great first year. Killed a buck and a bull here on the front. I'm, I'm an avid trail runner. So, and having hunted my whole life, I, I kind of hit the ground running bow hunting because I knew our animals would be and I, I knew animal behavior. So I had a first ex- good first year. And, and since then, um, 2014, 16 and 18, I hit shoulders on three bulls. The very first encounter in 2014, I was, I was, you know, kind of just at the mercy of the pro shop that set me up and I was shooting a 385 grain arrow. Again, I didn't know my pro shop set me up. Um, I did, I was shooting a, a slick trick standard. And I hit a bull in the shoulder and I got zero penetration. But at the time I was naive and I thought that I, you know, made a perfect shot and killed him. Um, I saw my arrow hanging out, but I've seen that on a lot of elk hunting videos. I just didn't realize at the time how, how much my arrow was hanging out. Anyway, didn't end up killing that bull, got like no penetration. So fast forward to 2015, I started doing all that stuff on my own. I started, you know, just head over hills research. Um, I kind of lost trust in the pro shop, even though it was a great pro shop. I started setting all that stuff up on my own. And, and in, in 16, I was in Wyoming, hit another bull in the shoulder. This time I was shooting a 490 grain arrow with a slick trick standard. And again, no penetration. Um, didn't breach that front shoulder. So that was kind of frustrating. Didn't kill that bull. We ended up hunting him a couple more times. And then in 2018, I was like, I'm really going to get serious with this bull hunting. And in 18, I had more time. I didn't hunt very much in 17. So 18, um, I had three essentially general season elk tags. I had a Utah OTC, Idaho OTC, and then you're probably aware of those late archery elk hunts in New Mexico and Arizona. Yes, yeah, so I picked up one of those on like a one-point unit in Arizona, and my goal was to kill three bulls. I didn't really care how big, but three branch antler bulls in, in the three states. So that year, I that summer, I set out to make a, a really heavy just arrow that I hoped would penetrate the, uh, the scapula of a bull. So I did a lot of research and ended up, um, tune in this arrow that weighed, it weighed, it was, it weighed 200 or sorry, 630 grains. Um, but I hated the trajectory on that arrow for like mule deer or open country elk hunting. Cause I didn't want to shoot that thing out to out beyond 60 yards because I don't know if you do this, but I'm sure you do. But if you have your pin set at 70 or 80 yards, you ever, do you, you ever take an opportunity to shoot it? if your pin set at 80 yards just to see how, how 
how different your arrow will land or how much lower your arrow or higher your arrow will land if you add five yards to that or take five yards away. So you have your pin on 80 and you, and you shoot for 75 or 80 and you, and you're actually at 75 or 85 with that shooting with that pin gives you an idea of, of your, I call it ranging forgiveness and the ranging forgiveness on this arrow was horrible. So 80 yards is kind of my benchmark and 80 yards that range forgiveness on that arrow. So being inside the kill zone, um, I could shoot that arrow at like 78 yards and, and be within like a six inch or five inch circle, five, sorry, five inch radius circle. So 10 inch diameter, which is kind of what I figured is a kill zone on a big elk or a big deer. So that was just horrible. So I said, that's not going to work. You know, that's going to work great for my, my deer, my elk hunts, but deer hunts, I need something faster and, you know, flat trajectory ranging forgiveness is I think so important, more important than I think people give it credit for because all of us have had encounters where, you know, with a, a single pin or a three pin slider, you're, you're, you got a deer at 80 yards and he takes a couple of steps but it's kind of far out there. So you, you rearrange and you slide again and, and you draw again. And in that time, the situation could bugger. But if you were able to shoot that first time and had confidence that, that your arrow was going to find its mark, even though the animal moved, you know, oftentimes if you can release that first arrow, you're, you're much better off. Um, so I'm sure you've had that sort of encounter, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, it's so smart the way you describe it, um, James. If you don't mind, we'll just get right into the podcast and we'll keep kind of that arrow set up. Um, audio sounds great. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I took my jacket off, so. Yeah, that, um, gosh, that's that's so key. Like, uh, boy, you hit on so many great archery points there. Um, you know, first off, those elk and hitting that shoulder. You know, I learned that hard lesson as well with my bow. Um, that, you know, to, and mine was more to stay away from the shoulder, to aim off the shoulder. You know, I messed with my arrow weights and because I only have a 26 and a half inch draw length, you know, I, I couldn't, I just figured I had to stay away from that shoulder, but I love what you're saying about that big, heavy fixed blade arrow. Um, you're right. They just penetrate better. And, and so I lean towards that side of things, but it's a fine line between range forgiveness and between penetration. And, and so I've kind of settled on about a 450 grain arrow. I've, you know, I've messed with other arrows all the way up to 550 grains and then all the way down to 400 grains. And that seems to be about the happy medium for me. But then uh, you talking about the range forgiveness and, and also uh, uh, forgiveness is just so key with archery as well. Oh, uh, forgiveness for in sure. shot, you know, and those – those fixed blades, um, you know, you can get them to fly really good and really accurate, but they're not as forgiving as an expandable because there's just more surface area. In that for surface sure. area, you know, it catches more wind for wind drift. It um, and, and it seems to exaggerate anything in your form. So if you miss low and left, a fixed blade will miss farther than an expandable will miss. It just seems to me. And so, like, I've kind of landed on those expandables as well for the forgiveness. But I loved you talking about range forgiveness. That is so key because with those big, heavy arrows, yeah, if you're off by even a yard or two at those longer distances – 
you know, you're not inside that eight inch kill or that six inch kill. You know, eight inch is what I think of on a mule deer, twelve inch on an elk. But but mm-hmm. even those elk have to be such precise shots because they're such strong animals, you know. So you just got to put one right in the center of them. Um, so what what a great combination. I've never heard of that of running two different arrow setups. And so when I read that on your page. I started thinking about it more and more, and um, it makes sense, especially you describing it like that. Yeah, exactly. So to to finish that off real quick, that, that year I ended up killing two bulls. So I figured out how to tune. So in the summertime, I figured out how to tune both those arrows to my bow, and that's the key, tuning the arrows to the bow. And that's uh, how let me just interrupt, James. Are they both the same spine, or are they different spines? No different spines okay yeah that makes sense okay yeah so so you play with so you basically you can use archer's advantage to kind of play with um your spine selection charts yep i use that and and then but you got to take into account when you're getting to be really really heavy so to be so to get the 650 grain arrow to work you got to have a lot of weight up front because arrows just aren't built with enough mass to get that heavy um so you got to ha- end up having a lot of weight up front, which can really, you know, weaken the arrow. For you and I, I've got a 28-inch draw, so I can I can shoot a really short arrow. And, and tr- in fact, I try to shoot a really short arrow. Me too. Um, I, sh- I cut my arrow down to below 26 inches on my 28-inch draw, and I set my rest pretty far back. I, you know, I'm sure you've heard of torque tuning. Yep. Torque tuning. I like to run my sight really close to me, unlike you know half the people I feel like in the industry. You know, the Cam Haynes idea of running your sight reel out there, and that's great. But for me, I like to run my sight closer. Um, I don't like to see the pin movement. Uh, pin movement, in my opinion, leads to leads – to, um, um, oh, God, why did I, I just fart on the, on the target panic? Yes, pin exactly. Pin movement, in my opinion, leads to target panic. So the further out there you have that on the – on the fulcrum, uh, the further out there you have that on the, yeah, fulcrum, I guess, further out there you have that extended, all of your little movements that you make just breathing is magnified the further out your pin is. Uh, so I like to keep it close so I, I have less pin float um, and, I, and I can execute a much better shot, less, less uh, it's, it's more forgiving in my opinion. And then the other beauty about that is running your sight really close is you get more you get more range out of your you get more range out of your sight tape. Yep. Um, you can so shoot guys, further. Yeah, so guys looking to so I run my sight in close, so in order for me to torque tune have you, have you do you do torque tuning? Have you heard of torque tuning? Yeah, I do. I use torque tuning as well. Yeah, and, and yeah. torque tuning is a a style of tuning where you can torque your bow and the arrow still hits in the middle, and it has to do with how far your sight sits from your bow and how far your rest sits from your bow, and finding that happy medium, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, so so running my sight really close means that I've got to run my rest a little further back to be torque tuned, but I love that because it allows me to shoot a shorter arrow. Yeah, and the the shorter arrow, uh, it's it's just got better aerodynamics. I love your engineer mind. Like everything you talk about with your bow and with your setup, I can tell you've really thought through it and looked at it. And so you're right. That shorter arrow, uh, it it's um catches less wind drift. There's less surface area to hit, 
And, and then also, I just like that. I like that heavy front of center just seems to pull those arrows to the target too. And that heavy front of center also helps with the with the wind drift as well. So I'm the same way, James. Yeah, it does. Um, now, you know, when people hear a lot of FOC, people immediately think Ashby. So I'm not like an Ashby lifer. I'm not like a guy that that lives my life according to Ashby. But uh, I agree. I like front and center. I don't, you know, I don't go over the top on it. I think I I like more more arrow weight than anything. But one thing that I definitely don't agree with with like the Ashby studies is they promote lessening the the amount of of fletching on the back of the arrow to maximize the the arrow's energy, stating that um, an arrow an arrow will tune easier, and like you said, kind of just pull itself with a lot of front of center. That I think he uses like the stick with a string behind it analogy, but that leads to, in my experience, that leads to shots where if you have if you have very little resistance on the back of your arrow that arrow can struggle in the wind because there isn't enough. So, so arrow flight is like, is like, is, um, it follows the laws of physics, like everything else, the back of the arrow with the resistance of the fletchings wants to track the front of the arrow, the front of the arrow breaks the wind and the back of the arrow, because it has resistance wants to follow in that break. It's kind of like the whole idea with the, with cyclists, how they want to follow right behind the, you know, the Peloton mentality. So that's what the fletching does. If you minimize that fletching in the wind, um, then that arrow doesn't have as much resistance and the back of the arrow doesn't necessarily track the front of the arrow. And that's why you hear kind of those random stories about guys shooting really high FOC and, you know, an Ashby typical arrow and they don't get very good penetration. It's because they've minimized those, They've minimized that fletching on the back of the arrow. Um, so that's the one thing that I do really differently is I load the back of my arrow up with a ton of fletching um, to be to be just ultra forgiving, especially on that fixed plate arrow, like you said. Like if, if there's one thing that people got out of me and my archery madness and nerdness, it's forgiveness. Setting up your bow to be as forgiving as possible. And the whole reason why I do the two arrow setup is, is, um, so I haven't, I didn't even finish my story in Arizona. You got me so excited about nerding out on arrows and whatnot. But in Arizona, I killed that bull. I killed a bull with that 630 grain arrow and I shot him right through the scapula. It, it, it breached. I got a full pass through first air, first time I've ever killed a bull. Um, you know, I'm not aiming for that front shoulder, but sometimes on a slight quartering two shot or, or whatever, it's, it's bow hunting and we're all human. Sometimes you catch it. So I've hit it three times and I breached it once and that 630 grain arrow with a stout fixed blade did it. So that I'm, I'm sold on that arrow. And in my opinion, going on this forgiveness talk here is that the arrow, well, well, I should say in short, short range situations, most, most likely hunting elk ambush or calling them in. And if you do a lot of hunting solo, 
which I do, and, and I know that you've done a fair amount of, you, you know that you get a lot of frontal and quartering two-shot opportunities when you call elk solo. So in my opinion, a short-range engage, engagement situation, the most forgiving arrow is a really, really heavy arrow with a stout fixed blade, you know, kind of under that 50 yards. Um, it's forgive, the reason why it's forgiving is trajectory doesn't really matter out to 50 yards, but what really matters is the shot angle. Um, so if, if you've got an arrow that will breach that front shoulder um, on deer and elk and, and you can break through the, the scapula, that opens up the world in terms of shot angle. Uh, so in my opinion, and then you, and then that arrow will also do better in, in busting through a little bit of brush. So that's the ultimate forgiveness in my mind on a short, on a short range engagement. Um, now, now you take that arrow and try to shoot it beyond 60 yards. And because of all of my practice and knowing that that arrow just has horrible range forgiveness, you know, range finders, you know, I, I try to, I try to buy the best equipment. I've got to like a range finder and, but I think range finders are only accurate out to, they're like, I think they state their plus or minus one yard accuracy out to a hundred yards or something like that. Um, and if an animal moves when you've slid and you're ranged, um, and you got to let down because they moved, um, that's just, that's just opportunity that's being wasted. So I don't like to shoot that arrow really beyond 50, 60 yards. Um, I've got, I rig up my black gold so that I've got my, my pins are set up such that with my light arrow, they're 30, 40, 50. And then the, there's a sight tape in the conventional spot for that light arrow. For the heavy arrow, those same exact pins are the, are 20. It just worked out that that first, the top, that 30 yard pin for my light arrow was 20 for my heavy arrow. It's 29 for my, it's 29 for my, my heavy arrow on the second pin. And then the, I just considered it 30. It's close enough. And then that last arrow is more like that last pin is more like 36 or 37 yards. So then I have a sight tape that I paste and people can look at my social media for pictures on this. Um, that, uh, I paste a, a, a second sight tape on the back, on the back side of my black gold, still the sliding portion. And I, I've, I've cut a little hash mark in the aluminum so that I have a sight tape there. Um, I try not to, I try to only use that arrow out to 50 yards. So if I have fixed pins to 37 and then I, I, I need to scroll for those last 13 yards, um, I can, um, optimally I'm not even scrolling for that heavy arrow. I'm using my fixed pins between 20 and 37. Um, but then like I was saying that, that light arrow, I've designed such that it goes really fast and it's really forgiving on, on ranging accuracy. So I, that arrow is designed, it's got a sever 1.5 on it. I really like that broadhead. And like we were taught, like you had mentioned earlier, uh, I don't know if you were recording at the time, but you know, the mechanicals are just so forgiving and they, like you were saying with fixed blades, the, the, the fixed blades magnify any sort of shot inconsistency and knowing you, Brian, um, and guys like us, it doesn't, you know, a hunting situation is so much different than practice. 
I bet you could put out to 80 yards. I bet you could stack your broadheads in a three inch circle, you know, just get, just judging by how much you shoot. But that's not to say that you can do that every situation while you're hunting. We all are human. We can all make mistakes. Your footing is different. You've got, sometimes you have lots of clothes on sometimes the terrain and the terrain makes your footing awkward. So being able to hold a three inch group with fixed blades at 80 yards or whatever in practice is great, but that's not a hunting situation. So in a hunting situation, you got to be real with yourself and you got to set up your bow to be, to have maximum forgiveness so that if you're shoot if you're not shooting at your best, which is very typical, if you've got a buck or a bull of a lifetime, that that arrow will still land on its mark. That's why you torque tune. Uh, that's why you have, you know, if you're shooting a, a fixed blade, that's why you don't really want to shoot over 300 feet per second. Uh, so that thing doesn't plane. Um, but I've just found that if, if I'm hunting a state that allows mechanicals, that have that really light arrow, um, I want it to be pretty light and fast. I still, I want to stay above 400 grains. And this, this, this arrow that I've settled on and that I got to tune with the heavy arrow, just playing with front of center and spine and arrow length. Um, that arrow came out to be 425 grains and it, um, it goes about 308 to 310 feet per second. And that arrow is just flat shooting to give you an idea the, my, my terminology again of ranging forgiveness. Again, I use the 80 yards as a benchmark. And at 80 yards, that light arrow has ranging forgiveness again, staying inside the kill at the kill zone down to 75 and as high as 85. So if I have my slider set on 80, my effective range with that arrow is 75 to 85. Um, that puts, that keeps me inside a five inch radius at, uh, at 80 yards. So that's, that's huge in my opinion. Um, being able to, to know that my arrow out to 80 yards that I have a bandwidth of about eight to 10 yards to work with. And that's led to many kills. Um, I've killed three, I've killed a lot of bucks and I've killed a lot of bulls. I've killed three really special deer here on my home unit. Um, all three are over 30 inches wide. There's one buck last year was 190 and, and 34 inches wide. I killed a buck, um, in 2015 that is a big framey three by four. That's mid one eighties and 35 wide. And then obviously that, that buck that I killed last year, KK, um, you know, he's, he's, uh, safely 230 class. He could exceed that and 36 inches wide, but all three of those deer, I basically took advantage of that ranging forgiveness with my arrows because all three of those deer, the engagement on those deer were all ambush situations and situations where, you know, the, the deer, it was in a dynamic position and, and had moved or was moving and being able to know that that arrow is going to hit its mark, even if the deer moves a little bit. And once we get into the story of my big buck, it'll kind of, and it'll kind of make a little bit more sense, but I'll just say that for now that, that ranging forgiveness is just so paramount. And that's, and that's ultimately the story of, as to why I came up with the two different arrow builds to maximize forgiveness in two different opportunities. So again, short range, 
in my opinion, maximum forgiveness is forgiveness and shot angle, quartering two or frontal shots. I, I want a really, really heavy arrow with a stout fixed blade, um, something like a, an iron will or a cutthroat, something that's that's just very solid in the industry, kind of two blade with the bleeder is kind of what I, I like. And, you know, so that's forgiveness short range and then forgiveness long range is a, as a fast light arrow with, uh, with a mechanical that, you know, you, you know that you got to stay well away from that front shoulder, but it's going to be at a longer range. So you're typically, typically on a longer range, you're going to be able to wait for the deer to turn broadside. And it's not so, it's not so much a story or you're not at the mercy of, of an elk coming in on a trail and having to take a, a quartering two shot. So in my mind, ultimate forgiveness on an arrow and a bow is a fast light arrow out beyond 60 for that ranging forgiveness. Gosh, I, um, man, uh, uh, hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Just, um, you talk of forgiveness and I love that, that range forgiveness. And like you say, to be effective, uh, from 10 yards from 75 to 85 is amazing, you know? And then, and then too, like like that, that shows itself as well. Shooting at animals, if your pin moves, so say your pin or your shot breaks a little low, having that forgiving quick arrow, you know, you've got that forgiveness of five yards. So if your pin breaks a little bit low, you're not going to miss that animal low. That that arrow is still going to hit close to its mark. Where if you miss low with one of the the heavy slower arrows, you know, you just don't have that range forgiveness. And just like you said. You, you range an animal, and then he takes a couple steps. Or, you know, also ranging animals isn't a perfect science. Like, it's an art in itself. So even with the best range finders, if you pick up a little grass in front of that animal and you end up having a yard that's two yards different than where that animal is, you know, you you miss that animal with a heavier arrow. And, and yeah. also, you know, a, a deer is, you know, four feet long so if you hit him one spot and you get a range or maybe he's bedded down and you hit him in the horns and then he stands up he can be a yard or two different from that and i know too you know i've also ranged a tree behind the deer like i've tried to hit his horns and i actually got the tree behind him and with a, a more forgiving setup you know it would have been a dead deer where i stuck that arrow above him and back into the tree behind him you know so i i just yep. love all that arrow talk that that you're talking about now james you had mentioned uh, uh fletchings and steering that arrow and i think mm -hmm. that's a really important part everybody has started going to the small fletchings and, and then you know not putting as much uh, uh helical on them you know to 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 because that helical also robs you of speed robs you of energy as it twists that arrow it grabs more air but for me i love that steering of an arrow and i've played with it and i don't need a five inch fletching to guide my arrow but i do know like i i like shooting the four fletch because i get more steering out of it but i i don't i don't get any uh worse wind drift or any because it's the same uh, uh, fletchings on the back it's just more steering without less wind uh, uh wind drag or it wouldn't be wind drag i guess it'd be like side wind pressure because that that vein has that same profile you know so it's not sticking yeah. any further out and then i also i mess around with three inch fletchings i mess around with with a four fletch I, I really think that steering is so important on an arrow 
even with a heavy front of center, and especially you know the the if you're shooting a a fixed blade, um, gosh, you just want more steering on that arrow to guide that arrow. And I really notice it like in my group tunings. Yeah, yeah, everything that you said just rings true. That that to give you an idea of what I shoot, my arrow that is is specifically for mechanicals. I still have a pretty big ass fletching on that arrow. It's, it's, um, I shoot the flex fletch 360 vein. So it's 3.6 inches long, pretty, pretty high profile, not as high as a blazer. I think it's in that 4.454, uh, 0.45, um, window. It, it's, it's, it's a pretty big vein. And I shoot three of those for my mechanicals, but my fixed blades, I shoot, I shoot that in a four fletch, which I think if people know that vein, people may chuckle at me that I shoot that in a four fletch because that is just a tremendous amount of vein. But again, I can't, if anything, if anybody were to learn anything from the science of tons of my friends here locally have kind of already tapped into my engineer nerdiness and they all call me master Yater. Uh, my last name's Yates. So the master Yater uh, philosophy here um, is that forgiveness is king and more fletching means more resistance on the back of that arrow, which means um, that arrow is going to fly true and it's going to track well. And in my experience, um, like you were saying, having that resistance on the back of the arrow actually helps um, in crosswind situations because that resistance keeps the arrow the back of that arrow tracking the front of the arrow, and that's what leads to, uh, you know, the best penetration is when the entire momentum of the arrow is in line with itself. Um, that's when, in high wind situations, if you don't have a lot of fletching, if you were to shoot like a bear shaft in the wind, that's like the worst scenario, right? That that the back of the arrow is not going to track the front of the arrow, and then you're going to get zero momentum on your in your penetration. Um, the momentum of the arrow is not aligned and the full weight of the arrow, I should say, is not aligned and you get poor penetrations. So lots of fletching, um, you know, starting out fast with your arrow. Um, it's just it's just kind of what I found works. And I do a lot of tinkering. Like I said, I've got my own I've got everything that a pro shop has in my garage. So I do all my own tuning. I do. You know, it's I do tons of testing. I'm a member of the Easton facility here in Salt Lake, so I shoot year round. Um, I do a ton of testing with my arrows. Just a real, just you know, like all all at 80 yards is my bench benchmark because that's about how far you can shoot in the Easton facility indoors. So I use 80 yards as a big benchmark, and you know, I'll, I'll see what I can get away with with. Um, you know, I try to torque tune out to 80 yards. I, I can, I see what I get away with on kneeling shots. And I try to, you know, I try to, I try to shoot my bow where I'm, I'm pulling really hard into the back wall. And I try to shoot my, my, my bow where maybe I'm just off the back wall. And I just really try my hardest to, to figure out what's going to happen in a clutch situation in order to make those clutch shots. Um, I joke that, I shoot 10,000 arrows in a year, um, and that's not the joke, but uh, I shoot 10,000 arrows in a year to maybe only have one opportunity in the field. Um, and this year I was, I had a, 
an out-of-state muzzleloader hunt and rifle hunt. And here in Utah, although we have an OTC elk hunt, I only I only elk hunted a few days because I, I just funneled all of my available time into this deer. So I knew that that was going to be my one solo archery hunt this year. And, and you know, I was just praying and had that premonition that, I guess you weren't recording that at the time, but I just had this real strong premonition that if I stay true to working really hard, that I'd get my opportunity on that buck. And I just didn't know at the time that all season long and all preseason long, that that opportunity was going to come in the last 20 minutes of daylight on, you know, the, the last day of the archery season and the, uh, maybe the last year of that buck's life. So. Man, James, I just love the way your mind works. And um, it's definitely, you know, as I get to know you, it's not an accident that you killed one of the biggest deer off the front. You put in so much work on that deer. And we talked a little bit before I started recording, but I read on your social media, the trail cameras, and I, I read, you know, there was some 40 some trips up to the up to the mountain, you know, checking your cameras and keeping the tabs on this buck. And you've actually hunted this buck for multiple years. So you killed one of the biggest bucks with your bow off the front. Uh, like, like walk me through that. We've talked about your preparation a little bit, but uh, walk me through the journey of that buck. It, and by the way, he is just absolutely amazing. Congratulations. What a buck. Thank, thanks, man. He, yeah, he was a dream. So uh, you kind of jumping into the story. So, in 2017 was the very first year that that I really hunted the buck. I'd seen him in 16. Um, he wasn't like that odd jaw-dropping buck in 16, uh, so I didn't really engage him then. In 17, he was a, a, like a 190-type buck with some stickers. And that year was a little difficult for me. My first, my first kid, um, you know, was kind of in that, one year old range which can be a, a um, an awesome age for kids but also needs a lot of parenting and you know we were my my wife and I were both you know young and um and you know we needed to just help each other through that and I also changed jobs so I just didn't get to hunt as much as as I normally can get away with in 17 so I saw that deer once scouting and once during the hunt but uh, wasn't able to get on him, wasn't able to stalk him. So fast forward to 2018, I had a lot more time and I, all early season scouting, I tried to locate him and never found him. I, I ran a lot of cameras, um, probably 10 or so cameras on that ridge. and just never picked him up. Uh, I didn't hear any chatter. Um, I didn't hear any chatter about people finding the deer and you know, that chatter is kind of important here on the, on the front. Um, the, the unit is just so incredibly popular. It's, um, it's just so close to a large population of people in Salt Lake and they open up that unit during the extended archery hunt to allow anybody with it's, it, you know, it's effectively the most hunted, you know, public land, in my opinion, in the country. Um, it's, you know, anybody with a valid archery tag in the state of Utah can hunt the extended um, there's a huge population of hunters on the Wasatch Front, and they all just pile up into the extended portion of the state. Um, 
you know, from September to November. And I'm not joking when I say that there's probably 20 to 30,000 hunters in the unit. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I, uh, I've also hunted that front and, and actually I, I brought a, a great big buck out of there. Gosh, it's been since 2013, but those deer just act different on that front. Yeah. I killed, uh, it was 34 wide went 210. Um, and I saw that buck, I had scouted him before season. And then I saw that buck, uh, two times in seven days, 14, uh, sits on vantage points where that buck was living. I saw him twice. Like those deer, they get tight programs. They know the pressures around, you know, and, and, uh, they get really good at avoiding it. And it sounds like that's the case with that giant buck that you found. He got really good at living at one of the highest pressured units in the state. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that kind of just gives you an idea of the front. Extreme amount of pressure. I know that you hunt a lot of different states and a lot of different, and I, I do as well. I've 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 killed a buck and a bull in every state touching Utah, except Nevada, and 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 most of those being archery. And the hardest unit that I've ever hunted is the Wasatch Front, just because <laughs> of all the pressure and the deer are so cagey and yep. you can get away with no noise and. Anyway, so it's the proving, it's a proving ground. And I think that's why a lot of people, you know, typically if I were to just kill a 240 inch deer, you know, I probably wouldn't be telling people I killed him on the front, but I really honestly don't care because it's not like you're going to, it's not like you're going to pressure up the unit anymore. <laughs> and, and good, if you want to come in here from out of state, be prepared to chase big deer with, 20 other people chasing them and, and, and just, and just best, best of luck. So it's not one of those things that like, I feel like I'm, I'm giving away a secret. And I know a lot of people share this mentality with the front. Like you want to come hunt the front. Great. Come do it. There's already 20, 20,000 other people who hunt it. So there's, but you're not going to make a dent. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, you're exactly people, right. You're spot on. How many, how many people are, you would never hear the unit that somebody just killed a 230 or 240 inch, you know, essentially OTC public land deer. But on the Wasatch front, it's just like, who cares? It, I mean, it's already got so much pressure. So that's kind of the, that gives you kind of a mentality. So 2018, I went out trying to find him, never found him. I, again, I wasn't hearing any chatter of that bit of a big deer in that area. So I just went along my way and I ended up killing a really nice 160 type, 26 inch wide, four point with really good eye guards. And I had three elk tags that year, um, essentially all OTC general, uh, Idaho, Utah. And then I drew one of those like one point, you could probably even pick it up with zero points back then, but one of those late archery, one of those late archery, um, late season elk hunts in Arizona. And I ended up killing three bulls on those three tags. Um, and I killed a deer in Idaho and I killed a buck in Utah. So Man, that was a busy really, year. Yeah, that was a fun year. Uh, three, three branch antler bulls, a five point in Idaho, a good six in Utah, and then a raghorn in Arizona, um, which I was super willing to take because, you know, those late archery hunts in November are, are, you're just at the mercy of the mountain and that's a really tough hunt itself. And so that was really, that was really fun. So in 2019, I, I set up to, you know, I started scouting again, um, here in my home unit and, you know, I thought that buck was dead. So 
I really, I, I do focus in on the area where I killed him. Uh, you know, I, I found good success in that area. So I, I was focused, focused on that area. I was looking for other big deer and I turned up a really wide white tail framed three by four. Um, uh, the, and I, and I watched that buck figured him at 34 or 35 inches wide. Um, and probably in that 198 class and, uh, just fell in love with that deer and, Thinking that this 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 big buck that I call KK was dead, I uh, I set out to hunt this other whitetail frame deer and and ended up killing him on the second day of the season, um, and that was great. It was an ambush situation, um, so having that that flat shooting long long range arrow that I have, you know, really helped me kill that deer um that was a beautiful I, buck too james that wide frame on that thing and like that white tail looking rack uh that was a giant deer out. as well yeah 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 the one thing that deer um unfortunately was still growing um i think a lot of animals in the west that year because of the really wet spring and the late and the late winter that buck was still growing so we'd kind of figured that he still had several more several more inches to put on because all of his tips were still balled up and, and still soft and, huh still soft yeah. oh wow so, but i wasn't not going to kill that deer I mean, he, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he was a, he was a giant whether he had a yeah, few inches to grow or not yeah he he's a dream buck i mean he's he's a 193 by 4 34 inches wide and just mass for days and anyway biggest deer that i killed at that point um you know, I've killed one other. I've killed one other really solid buck off the front, um, mid 180 class, 35 inches wide. So this, I've now killed three over 34 wide on the front, and uh, so I just like those big frames. That, that, that's what gets me. That's what gets me is those big frames and really wide. My grandpa, you know, I, I I've hunted all my life with my grandpa and my dad, and my grandpa was part of that era where width was all that mattered. So I just remember going out with my grandpa and just looking at a bunch of wide bucks. And that kind of got ingrained in my mind, evidently, because I just see a big, framey, wide buck, just width, and it's just like, I just start drooling. So that's kind of, you know, people joke that no 30-inch buck is safe on the Wasatch front because I'm going to find him and kill him. But, (laughs) uh, yeah, so I I like really wide bucks. Um, So uh, 19... Continuing on with the story, I, uh, in 19, I, so I found, so found this deer, killed him on the second day. And so I continued to use my mornings. Um, so my job allows me to, to hunt in the, in the mornings and get into work to, I'm a chemical engineer. And so I have to, I'm a consultant. So I have to engage with, with our, with our other engineers and designers to, um, to really, uh, you know, to, to progress my projects and whatnot. But as long as I'm there during core hours, I can get away with hunting a couple of mornings a week. And anyway, I'm, I'm a night owl. So I end up picking up a lot of the work, a lot of my work that, that normal people do during the day. I ended up, you know, I was up till 2am twiddling with a video I'm putting out on a muzzleloader build and working. I mean, I just, I just don't need to sleep that much. It's kind of, my one skill in life. So I ended up picking up a lot of my work in the, at night to compensate for my hunting during the day. But so that was, I continued to scout run cameras. Um, and that actually proved to be what killed this deer because 
Now, fast forward to 2020, I was up early season in June checking trail cameras with my four-year-old son. It was the very first time he came up to check cameras with me. I figured he could make the hike, and I had to give him, we call them shoulder bugs, up a little a little bit with the, all the thick undergrowth. But anyway, a really fun day with my son. And I remember sitting down under the, the shade of a pine tree with my son in my lap. We were flipping through trail camera photos. And I came across a photo of him. And my jaw dropped. Because I thought he was dead. I thought this buck uh, from 17 was dead. And he was obviously not dead. He was in there in this late season spot chasing does. And instantly... I mean, I just got this surge of adrenaline, like, this is the year. This is the year that I'm going to dedicate, if I have to forego hunting elk, if I have to forego out-of-state hunts, this is the year that I'm going to dedicate to hunting that deer. So the trail camera picture showed me that in 2019, so again, they were from spring of 2020, but they were from the fall of, late fall of 2019. I left the cameras up over the winter. That buck looked to be in that 215, 220 range that year. So I, I talked around with a couple of buddies that I that I know hunt the area. And there were two buddies that, well, three buddies of mine that I trusted, you know, kind of wholeheartedly. First, Jaron Danzi, who's kind of my main hunting partner. And then a guy named Luke and another guy named Ty, Luke Holding and Ty Glenn. Luke is, Luke and Ty hunt the same area. Ty had helped, Ty and I have helped each other on deer for the last several years, so I have total confidence in Ty. And then Luke, I know, hunts the area and is pretty tight-lipped. And So I decided to talk with these guys about the deer, and we kind of pooled. Um, Luke was the only one who had, who had experience with him. He, had, he hunted him in 17, actually thought he was dead in 18 as well, and then picked him up. Um, at the end of 2019 on the winter range preparing to shed hunt. So he was up looking for sheds or scouting for shed hunting and, and turned the buck up. So, so he thought the buck had died most of 2018 and 19 and turned him back up in, in the, the winter of 19. So that year I set up scouting. Um, I went up and, and funny enough, but the very first day I anticipated where he, where he was going to be in the summer. And, um, it was a little lower down the mountain than where I'd seen him in 17. And I figured that's why I didn't see him in 18. And so I went up in the very, very first time I went up in July 8th. I'll always remember that date. July 8th, I saw him for the first time through my binos and that deer was already, I swear on July 8th, was already a 190 type buck. And I just remember thinking, holy crap, first day I found him, this is going to be awesome. Well, that just was not telling of the future because I never saw that deer through the glass again until November 12th, um, despite a voracious amount of glassing and trips up the mountain. So I eventually, so I learned quickly that, and it was, and it's no, and it's no, it's not like I'm a poor glasser. I, I feel like I feel very confident in my glassing skills. It's just he lived in a canyon that was, 
super thick. And I think that's why the deer grew so old is I think, you know, he was just a genetic anomaly and most, most mule deer like to be in the open and be able to see this deer behaved more like an elk and just preferred the thick timber because once, you know, mid July came around, he was never in open feeding areas in the daylight, never. So I, I, I started running cameras and like, like, like has been mentioned, I ended up setting 31 different trail cameras. Um, in the state of Utah, we, we, we are allowed to quote unquote bait. Um, so I, I took advantage of that, that I was using salt and, you know, things like buck jam and deer cane stuff with like kind of an apple aroma. And, and I was run and I hauled, you know, I hauled salt and buck jam up to every one of these camera locations and kind of just doing the math to it. I think I hauled between six and 700 pounds of salt and, and buck jam on the mountain, um, just trying to just do anything I could to, to get that deer to stop in front of my cameras, or if he was just above my camera or just below it, hopefully the buck jam or salt would engage him enough to come to in front of the camera. Anyway, so that that's how I kept tabs on the buck, um, and I thought I was going to kill the deer on the opener because. I had him on this little ridge. The opener this last year was August 15th and end of July, 1st of August. I had him, I almost had him, I had him on camera like four days in a row and coming through this, this pine section on this trail quite regularly. And I thought I was going to kill him on the opener. Um, but unfortunately that 1st of August time frame is I guess when most other people, wanted to get up and start doing scouting of their own. And although the area does not get a ton of pressure, um, just because it's, it's really thick and there's no trails and it's just a really one-off area. Um, I hardly ever got any other deer on my trail cameras. It was just kind of like this, where this one deer liked to live, but there was a little bit of pressure that came in, in that first of August timeframe, I guess the other guy setting up tree stands or, packing in camp or whatever. I, I don't know, but, uh, I definitely saw more hunting trucks, um, at the trailheads in August. And I think it bumped him off that routine. And then he kind of, he kind of disappeared. And I was a little devastated that I wasn't going to kill him on the, the opener. And I didn't pick him up on a trail camera for a really long time. It was about a month and a half. And then when I was in a Colorado on a, on a, on a, one of those high country muzzleloader elk hunts, um, which was just a fantastic fun time as well, but story for a different day. Um, I got down out of the wilderness and, uh, one of my cameras was a wireless camera. And I, I, after 10 or 11 days in the wilderness, I came down and, and was scrolling through the pictures that, uh, as we were driving home and sure enough, he came by one of my wireless cameras while I was gone in the middle of the night. And so I was like, oh, sweet, he's still alive. So I went home and, you know, I was running more cameras. Um, I only had a couple of wireless cameras, so I was checking all my other cameras. And um, turned out that I got him several different times on, on other cameras, but again, mostly at night. So I continued just running through these cameras for the whole month, uh, you know, for rest of September and October and just trying to go up there every chance I got weekends, um, a couple of times during the week. Um, another thing that I would do to kind of separate myself was, and to give myself enough time is 
as I've kind of already said, I'm a night owl and I, I, I'm really effective on, on little sleep. I don't, I don't feel like I'm particularly skilled, um, that I have a lot of raw skill. Um, you know, I think the things that I'm good at, I, I work really hard for, and I, I tend to be good at stuff that's more masochistic in nature. Um, but if I were, if I were to say, if I were to have one, if I were to have one blessing or, or one attribute that I, that I really like of myself is, is my ability to, to work on little sleep. Um, you know, I've got other friends that my friend, Jaron, he's like the most skilled person I know. Like that guy just has raw talent from birth and he can, you know, he doesn't need to practice all that much with his bow and he can be a pretty, pretty damn good shot. Um, you know, I've got other friends that are really good basketball players. Anyway, I'm the type of guy that, you know, I'm going to put my head down and work hard, develop muscle memory. And that's how I get good at stuff. I love that. Um, I just, I just, I'm just not that skilled of I mean, I'm not the guy with, you know, I'm fairly, I'm fairly athletic, but my hand-eye coordination isn't the greatest. I'm never, I was never really good at, although I love to play basketball, I was never really good at it. And I've just found, like I said, that my skill is masochism. My skill is grinding hard into the night. And, and so I take advantage of that. So on this deer, there were six different times where I, I pulled complete overnighters checking those cameras. Uh, so I, I come home from work. I, we'd eat dinner with the family. I'd help my wife with the chores, get my kids down to bed, probably work a little bit. And then I'd go up on the mountain and I would check cameras from like 10 p.m. until 6, 7 a.m. And that was six different times. And if I was running late for work, I would literally have a change of pair, change of clothes. And I'd kind of give myself a, a little bath in, in one of the creeks, kind of wash my face and get a rag and wash my armpits and put on a much needed stick of deodorant. And I'd go into work. If I had time, I'd go home and shower before I went into work. But so that's that's how I kind of check the cameras. So I, once the hunt started, I really tried to check cameras at night and hunt during the day. But again, this 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 deer has de has amongst the few people who knew about this deer, he developed the reputation and the nickname Ghost. Uh, so he was just really living up to that name in 2020. And uh, anyway, fast forward to, to keep the story with the momentum here. Um, in 20 in November, um, I, again I knew where he'd like to rub based off the trail camera stuff that I got in 2019, and. Um, I, the very first time that, that I saw him, um, uh, I, I'd gone up on a Saturday and then my buddy Luke, who I'd mentioned, he didn't have a deer tag, but Luke is a very selfless mule deer fanatic. So he was up in the area looking for elk, um, but was also trying to keep tabs on this buck for me. And he went up on a Sunday and actually caught a glimpse of that, of the deer came down, tried not to disturb the area, came down and told me. So I went up the next day, which I think was, I'm here in front of my computer. What day was that? It was one of the, the 16th. So he saw him first the Sunday, the 15th, and I was up there and I hunted him the 16th. So, so 
to give people an idea. So I didn't see that deer with my glass from July 8th to November 16th. And I probably, in between that time period, I probably got near 800 to 1,000 trail camera photos of him um, across 31 cameras. So November 16th, I, I, I pursued him. I stalked him. The wind was really bad that day. So although I don't think, I don't remember him winding me, it was just so swirly that my scent was probably in this little basin enough. And I think it startled him. Maybe the rut hadn't kicked in quite enough, but he disappeared. It just so happened that that week, that week in November 16th, the Wasatch Front got pounded with three snowstorms. And it went from, I don't know, like 60, 70 degrees up in the high country and to three feet of snow. And I was devastated because I was like, there's just no way that buck is still where he's at. He was still fairly high and he just disappeared. He disappeared that entire week. So I went up essentially every day that week, but two days. So hunted five days that week, saved a lot of my PTO. Again, I didn't elk hunt much in Utah because of this, because of this deer. So I saved PTO and, um, I was just devastated. Um, I figured that he had migrated out because of all the snow. After those three snowstorms, though, it really heated up, and we had like a 65-degree day, and a bunch of that snow on the south-facing slopes melted. Um, so I was back up in the area the week of Thanksgiving. I had the entire week off um, for Thanksgiving and uh, was back up there on Monday, and I was sitting in this in this saddle. Um, one thing that, that I want to touch on here um, taking a little break in the, in the, in the story a little bit is a lot of the, a lot of opportunities that I have on these big deer are more in what I call micro situations. Um, you know, macro, macro hunting styles, macro versus micro macro hunting styles is more your quintessential Colorado tactic where you get to a, a vantage point or in, or in the desert where you get to a vantage point, you put animals to bed and then you, um, and then you stalk in once they're in bed and, and you wait for them to stand and you shoot them. You know, that's far and away the, probably the most productive tactic in the West. Um, the Wasatch Front is different in that a lot of times it's so thick and these big deer on the Wasatch Front don't really come out in the open. So a macro hunting strategy doesn't really benefit you, um, as much as what I call a micro strategy where you, where you kind of just, you're, you're giving a little bit on your vantage, but you're trying to put yourself in an area where you have maximum opportunity if the deer does happen to be in the area. So I take that approach where I do a lot of preseason scouting. I try to identify where the deer wants to be, and then I try to be in that area playing the wind as much as I can. So you got to make assumptions, um, you know, um, once I'm, once I'm hunting, I'm really trying to to be in that area because I've just found on the Wasatch front that from the time that you spot them to the time that they go into the thick timber to bed, you just don't have enough of a time window to, uh, to cut them off. And they certainly 90% of the time on the Wasatch front don't bed in the open and they drop down in the sea of timber. And then once they get into that timber, it's really hard to anticipate where they're going to show back up. Um, so that's kind of my strategy on the front. So I was, Oftentimes I was up there doing long sits and saddles on trails, um, 
just trying to keep myself in the zone with my wind right. And it just leads to, especially hunting late November, some really cold, cold days. Um, so the, the layering kit, you know, my, my layering system, I have really dialed. I really like Sitka layers, and I know you do as well. Um, and I just got that that layering kit of mine just so dialed so that I could hike in. To give the listeners an idea, I was hunting. I was going up. I was having to wake up at 345 in late November, so the sun comes up late. But he was that deep, uh, and it was just that hard to get into where he was rutting um, with the snow and whatnot. I was getting up at 345. So it was the tale of you know, tell of two, two stories there. I'd, I'd, I'd hike in and just sweat cause it was such an aerobic workout. And then I would get up there and most of my hunting tactic was fairly sedentary. So you just have to have that layer system so that you have to have that layer system dialed so that you can, you can stay warm and cognizant and aware and alert and act, you know, just have if you're cold and you're cold, miserable all day, you're not going to be an effective hunter. So I can't emphasize that enough, the importance of that layering system. So that was, um, no, so that was kind of back to the story here. So that was the week of Thanksgiving Monday. Um, I saw a doe that was, um, kind of working up this ridge and two younger bucks kind of engaged her and she, she was being chased, and then all of a sudden, those two younger bucks ran off. And I was like, that's interesting. They're behaving like a bigger buck just came to, to steal her. And about 200 yards away through the Aspen, I saw him. I saw KK, this buck that I'm calling KK, for the first time um, since. since uh, so that was Monday the 23rd, and the last time I'd seen him was, was Monday the 26th. So it'd been a week since I'd seen him. Um, I, I was hoping to cut him off. Um, ended up losing him in the thick aspens and, and never re-engaged him. Um, on my way out that night, um, like I'd said, it, war- it had warmed up quite a bit. was melting a bunch of that snow. And on my way out, I, uh, I slipped, actually, and my bow was on my backpack. And, uh, I slipped and I fell on my bow sight and, um, and kind of messed it up a little bit. I, um, I, I, I hit so hard that the, the bracket kind of got messed up. So Tuesday, instead of hunting, I had to work on my bow sight, went out to East and shot quite a bit, got everything back and dialed. Um, and I went back up, checked cameras and, and kind of this little area that I like to sit. And sure enough. They, they used that, that little trail saddle area. <laughs> uh, I had, I don't know, 200 photos of, of him and, and those deer for three hours. They kind of just were working back, you know, when they get in that rut fest, they kind of just do circles and, uh, that's exactly where I was sitting the day before. So that kind of gave me a stomach ache that <laughs> I was off the mountain fixing my bow and, and they were up right in the zone at this point. Nobody else is up there hunting him. And then, and then it just, it just so, it just like, like it happens with, with big bucks. Uh, the next day, Wednesday, um, two other groups of guys, I, for the very first time that I saw him, showed up to hunt him. 
Now, one of those guys, his name is Martin. He's a friend, and um, Martin has a ton of history with this deer as well as if people have followed along on social media. Um, so I knew he knew about the deer, but for whatever reason, I hadn't seen him the previous days. Um, so he came up and was hunting um, uh, on Wednesday, and he had a, another front legend named Devin Leonard who's killed a lot of big deer um, helping glass for him and, and whatnot. So that day, uh, we, I had my, my buddy Luke, my buddy Luke had taken the entire week of Thanksgiving off to basically come up and help me. And if he could have an opportunity on an elk, he'd take it. But his main emphasis was to come up to help me glass for me. Um, you know, if we needed, you know, just whatever. Um, so that day, um, Martin and I were back and forth on the deer a couple of times and we'd each screwed each other up. Martin had, um, um, you know, kind of inadvertently screwed me up that morning. And then that evening, um, we were both stalking in on the deer, unaware of how close each other were. And, uh, I kind of screwed him up that evening. Uh, so contentions were a little high. Um, and that was Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. Um, I got really close to the deer that night, actually drew on him at 65 yards. Um, I had a, a straight, um, ass away. He was, he was facing away. So I had a, a steep quartering away shot, um, probably been, would have been more effective to just put it right up his, uh, right up his, his, his rear end there. And, um, I decided not to take the shot. I figured that I'd get a better shot opportunity, um, it just so happened that as I was drawing my bow, he was unaware of me, but he had turned broadside and he went from straight away to perfectly broadside. When I drew my bow because he was broadside, he caught he caught my movement as I was drawing and the deer are so and I was in the open and, and whatnot, but the deer are so high alert here that he just he was just done. He I mean that one little movement, he was completely unaware of my presence. He straight up just left his dose and, and just was gone. Uh, typically during the rut, as you're aware, um, you can typically get away with a little bit more because those bucks are kind of rut crazy and want to stay with their does. That was not the case with this deer. This deer, he any sense of human pressure and he was gone. So that was Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. None of us hunted Thanksgiving. Um, again, there was a little bit of contention between Martin and I screwing each other up. Um, me, him, and then, or, or him, me, and then me, him. So Friday morning at the trailhead, I had gotten all my stuff ready. Um, Luke had already started up the mountain and Martin had pulled up. Um, and I just went up to kind of bury the hatchet. And I, I remember going up and giving him a fist bump and saying, Hey, good luck. Water's under the bridge, you know, water under the bridge. What happened Wednesday, you know, this past let's, you know, good luck. So he got his stuff ready. I took up, uh, took off up the mountain, um, and none of us found him that day. Uh, Friday, I I don't think Martin found him. We didn't find him. Now, um, that was that was Friday after Thanksgiving. There was like four days of the season left. Um, just judging by how far in the deer was, how early I'd have to get up, and my family situation, I knew I wasn't going to be able to hunt Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I knew I had to give some concession to my wife, so I figured in my mind that I would rather hunt Sunday, Monday instead of Saturday, Monday. 
So I hunted Friday and I took Saturday off, spent it with my two boys, my one-year-old and my four-year-old and my wife. And then Martin went up that Saturday. So he had the opposite mentality. He wanted to hunt Friday, Saturday, take a day off and go really hard the last day, Monday. So Martin went up Saturday and I later found out that had multiple, he had multiple opportunities on the deer, never drew on him, but, but got pretty close. Um, Sunday, so now Sunday, I went up and was on the deer multiple times, um, had seen what they, they were kind of feeding high across a ridge and dropped down into this, this timber to, to kind of feed, um, on the edge of this, this, this pine, this pine timber, uh, um, in an aspen thicket, kind of where the, the aspen and the pine come together. So I was in on the deer most of the day that day and had him inside of 40 yards three different times. And I drew on him twice that day, once at 25 and once at 36. Um, just no shot opportunity because of how thick it was. The 25-yard shot, I wish I could have let it rip with the that heavy arrow, but it was just too thick. And the brush was just was too big. Um so I, I didn't, I didn't let it fly. The, the opportunity at 36, he was in the open chasing a doe past me. And I thought he was fixated on the doe, but again, the stupid deer are just so wired here on the Wasatch front, especially an eight and a half year old. He's sitting there like he knows up a doe and I draw and he, and he somehow sees me. And I'm just like, what the crap? This deer is impossible to kill. And he bolts. He leaves his does again. I'm just like, I could not have defined a better situation. He's literally got his nose sniffing a doe. And and I I draw at 36 yards broadside. There's no way I've got a perfect pine backdrop, so I'm not in the open. And he busts. And I'm thinking, what in the crap? So a lot of people are going to see in my profile picture that I had a, a lot of face paint on. So the only thing I could figure is that he recognized my human face because he's seen a lot of people on the Wasatch front. So I tried to do everything that I could to eliminate just my human, my human presence. So I really blacked out my face with a lot of face paint. Um, I never ended up having an opportunity the rest of that day. Um, strangely enough in the afternoon that day, I was setting up on him again. I'd relocated him because of my, uh, you know, just glassing with my buddy Luke and Luke had actually turned him up. And strangely enough, there was another 170 buck who was, who was kind of, who was really active. My guess is that the buck KK stole his does and this buck went to, uh, this buck didn't, didn't like that obviously. And he tried to steal his does back that day. And and kind of dropped in really hard on the does and scattered them, and all those deer dropped down into the pines, and never materialized um, that that afternoon and evening. So, despite having a really good morning, the evening was really slow because they didn't really materialize. So, that was um, that was Sunday. Now Monday, the last day, we get to the I get to the trailhead. Um, of course, Martin and Devin, who was helping him show up, um, Luke had to get back to work. So my buddy, Ty Glenn, um, who, who we've hunted quite a bit, 
together. Um, he helped me on my deer in 2019, and then I helped. He killed uh, a 195, 37-inch wide um, buck on the front this year that I helped him that I helped him pattern and um, help him uh, track and find once he killed him. So I kind of I kind of feel like Ty and I are the, the the dream team. He and I just seem to kill when we get together and hunt. So I was very optimistic with him glassing for me, and I was really optimistic with with Luke helping me as well. But um, we just couldn't get it done. So Ty's up there helping me the last day, and we're glassing, and we turn the deer up, and he's in a very similar pattern to what he was the day before, feeding high on a ridge, but this time he was feeding even higher. So it looked like he was going to stay high that morning and cross through a, a saddle on the top of the ridge. Well, Martin had anticipated, because apparently that's what the deer did on Saturday when Martin was up there and I wasn't. So Martin, instead of stopping and glassing, had worked his way up to sit in that saddle. Um, and despite me being up ahead of him, getting there before him and hiking, I had stopped to glass. Martin didn't stop to glass and just assumed, again, taking making an assumption where the deer was going to be so he got to the saddle where it looked like the deer were feeding to um based off of his knowledge from what they did saturday well i was devastated because i had stopped a glass martin got ahead of me i didn't want to have a situation like what happened the week before so i just backed out i i didn't pressure the deer uh, i tried to do the respectable thing and give him his space and i figured in my mind that there was a chance that they were going to do what they did sunday although they were feeding higher on the ridge it's possible that they could drop down into the same pine thicket aspen area that they were the day before so i banked on that and i kid you not five minutes after i'd started down um you know peeking peeking over into the little basin they actually started to work their way down. They probably had to get within 150 yards of Martin. And he didn't bugger them. But although they were feeding a little higher that day, they kind of still fed, they they kind of did what they did the day before, which was I was just elated because I knew exactly what they were going to do. So I got down in there. Same sort of scenario that happened the day before. I was in on the deer. Most all day, I was waiting for my opportunity, and the buck had got up and was it was pushing a doe as she was feeding to the west. And I was set up in a clearing about 20 yards above the trail that they were feeding along. And uh, they got to about 40 yards away, and I could see them at this point. Now this is late afternoon. I'd sat kind of freezing my butt off in the in the in the in the trees here just waiting for my opportunity again that kind of that sedentary style and um so I'm, I'm just sitting there waiting for my opportunity they're feeding across on this trail i'm i'm in a great position i've got my heavy arrow knocked because i think it's going to be a 20 yard engagement um i'm just sitting there they get to 40 yards and that stupid 174 point comes in and busts up the does again. And they all drop in down into the timber. And this is like four o'clock at this point. And at that point, maybe three 30. I, it's like somebody just deflates a balloon. I, I was devastated because that happened the day before and the, the deer never materialized again. And 
you know, the day before they, I never saw the deer again. So the same thing played out deer drop into the timber and I'm just devastated. I'm thinking, you know, I'm so frustrated because of all the, the, the whole year's worth of work. I had this premonition that if I just stayed true to working hard, that I was eventually going to kill this deer. And I just was, I just remember being so frustrated. So I decided to, um, I decided to, it's the last day I kind of decided to force the situation. So I go down into the timber, down in the timber, still three feet of powder. And I tried to track him and wasn't having a very good job tracking him. Um, there's a lot of deer tracks down there. So I start working back towards Ty and we get, and I get over there and we're glassing and, um, and now it's, it's, it's getting closer to 4:30, 4:40 at this point. Uh, again, this is the last day of the extended archery season. This buck's eight and a half years old, likely the last year he's going to live. It's literally the curtains are closing. And my buddy Ty Glenn makes the most miraculous spot of miraculous spots of a chunk of antler moving through, you know, this, this, this interface between the aspen and the pines. And he picks up a big antler, bigger than any antler that, you know, heavier, I should say, than any antler that we've seen. So I immediately set out you know, essentially running to cut the distance. And, uh, I'd seen deer previous there. So I knew the spot really where, and, uh, um, I work, I start working up, um, again, the snow's kind of crunchy. So I was trying to stay in the pine canopy cause it was a little softer. And then I, it was getting dark and I really liked the shadows that uh, underneath the pine canopy. So I, I was trying to stay below the pines which I knew was going to lead to a longer shot. So I, I had my, uh, I knocked my light arrow, uh, knowing it was going to be a little longer shot and I wanted a flat profile so I could keep it underneath the pine canopy with a, you know, shorter trajectory. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm stalking along and, and now this is kind of going to really kind of open up people's minds as to why I really like that flat, that flat shooting arrow. Um, I had, he stopped, I was parallel below him and he stopped at 71 yards. I had ranged him and I drew my bow and he started moving again. Um, so I, I let down and I'm still walking. The deer are occasionally looking down at me and every time they would look, I would stop. Um, they could hear me, but they really couldn't see me because of, again, my black face paint, I think, and and I was just well camouflaged underneath those pine trees. So I'm paralleling below him again. And, um, and this time he stops and he stops in another clearing. I range him. Um, I'm already pretty dialed. In fact, I, I never even remember touching my bow sight. Um, and I, uh, he stops, I draw and he starts moving again. So this time I didn't let my draw down. And I'm continue and I lower kind of my bow arm so my bow arm doesn't get fatigued. Um, and I'm, and I'm kind of just cut, I'm paralleling below them. They're not moving very fast. The trail and the trajectory was that we were staying parallel to one another. And I had confidence that my light arrow, that if I just put it on the money, he hadn't, because we were paralleling each other, the distance between us hadn't, hadn't gained or gained or lessened to any real extent. So I, um, 
in the heat of the moment, I just want to be able to put the arrow, you know, on him center of mass and, and let the shot and let the shot go. Not having to worry about, Oh, he's, he's gotten a little closer. So I need to, I need to hold a little low or he's gotten a little further away. That's where I, why I really like that fast arrow. So I don't have to think about that in the moment. I just got to put the pin on the center of mass and, and, and just let the shot rip. So, uh, again, I held my draw and he stopped. So I immediately dropped to my back knee so I could get clearance from underneath the pine canopy. There was a, there was a window through the Aspens. Um, the, the shot angle was, it was 80 yards hold for, hold for 65. I believe it was a pretty steep, like 35, 40 degree uphill shot. And I, 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 I put my pin on him and executed, pulled through and the deer, I just remember seeing a flash of my, I remember hitting him. So I heard the sound. I remember seeing a flash of my veins. So I got a pass through and I, and the deer took one huge bound up into a thicket. And then I don't, I, I can, it's hard for me to describe, but the very next thing I saw like two seconds later was the deer's hooves coming up into the air. Like he had tried to jump, but like died and his, mo I, like his momentum kind of turned him sideways and his hooves came up in the air and then nothing. And I was like, what in the world did I just see? At that moment, you know, three quarters of a mile away, I heard Ty erupt. Um, Devin, who was helping Martin, um, was glassing near Ty, and I heard him erupt, you know, from a mile away. I'm just hearing him screaming, and I'm like, I think I just killed this deer. Um, I, 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 I'm shaken. I don't know, you know, I practice like you, Barney, I just practiced 365, maybe, maybe not truly 365, but I mean, to be honest with myself, I shoot two or three days a week at Easton out to 80, hundred yards. And then I blank bell another couple of days a week. So I'm at least shooting five, six days a week all through the season, um, making sure my bow is constantly tuned. Um, you know, I, I, I claim that I shoot 10, I shoot 10,000 arrows, uh, give or take maybe a thousand uh, for that one shot opportunity. And in that moment, I was able to settle my, my heart rate. Um, and I was able to execute a perfect shot. It felt really good. And the buck is, I can't see the buck, but he didn't go anywhere. Those guys are screaming. And I'm thinking, what, what just happened? This doesn't happen. You don't deer. Don't just fall over dead like that with, with an arrow. Um, I didn't shoot him with a 300 wind mag. And I gave it 30 minutes and I walked up and he, and he, and he was dead three yards from where I shot him. He just died. He just, it, he died within two seconds. Um, uh, speaking to the Testament of that light arrow setup, um, uh, I ended up holding right on the crease center of mass. That's where I, that's where I was aiming. And I hit two or three inches lower than where I was aiming again, because he'd probably gotten a little closer um, and the shot went up through his heart on the near side and exited about halfway to maybe two thirds up his body cavity on the opposite side. And so I hit the heart and I think the opposite side lung. And I, I must've cut arteries to his heart or something cause he died instantly and there was no tracking. 
and walking up on that deer, I, I started crying actually. Um, I know I've heard a lot of people do that. But that's not happened to me, but I just had, you know, years worth of emotion and ended up being 47 days up the mountain this year alone for that deer. That's not including the, the out of state hunts, um, that I did. It was 47 days for that one deer and, you know, all the preparation, um, you know, my engineering nerdiness, half the reason why I can't sleep at night is because my mind is, is really active and I can't turn my mind off. So there's every little thing about the hunt I've analyzed and, you know, every gear choice, every layer choice, backpack choice, arrow choice, bow choice, broadhead choice, all of that I think through and I think through to a, a, a painstaking amount, but that's just how my mind works. And that's why I'm a good, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. Cause that's, 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 that's just what I do. And so all of that, that thinking and the late nights and the trail camera checking, all of that just compiled on that one moment. And I, I was crying. And part of my emotion was that, that Martin who had a lot of time on this deer as well, you know, that, that he didn't get an opportunity and hats off to Martin that that last day, although we had some contention the previous week, we didn't screw each other up that last day. I gave him space that morning and he gave me space to make my play once they were in, in my lap that afternoon. So I can't thank Martin enough for, you know, that, that we, that we were, you know, we're friends and that we, we definitely weren't trying to help each other, but that last day, um, we definitely didn't screw each other up. And I can't thank my friend Ty and Luke and Jaron enough, you know, Jaron, I haven't mentioned him very much, but my buddy Jaron, who's kind of like my longtime hunting partner, he helped me run cameras all, all, all summer and fall. There were several nights that he went up, um, pulled an all nighter a couple of times checking the cameras for me. So, uh, you know, I killed this deer because of the efforts of selfless friends, um, because of the efforts of an extreme amount of work and all of that emotion came to me and I had, I had an inreach. Uh, so I immediately messaged, um, Jaron and, and, uh, Luke who were not up there, but they came up. And at that point, um, um, uh, Martin had come down, um, to me and I invited him and Devin to take some trucks to take some photos with us. And I'm a big believer in giving credit where credit's due. So if you, if people look back on my profile, typically if I've gotten help on an animal, you know, the glories for all of us to share. And the first photo that I post on any big deer that I kill, if I've had help, you know, that first photo is always going to be the group photo because the glory is, is for the group. And I wanted Devin there and I wanted Martin there in that, in that photo. And you know, the very first photo that I posted of that big buck last year, you know, has my friend Ty and Jaron in it who came up to help me track him the next morning this, this, the very first photo I posted, this buck's got my, my friends and Martin and Devin in it because it's, you know, it's, this deer died because of help that I got from Ty. This deer died because Martin and I didn't step on each other's toes. And, you know, I'm, I'm confident in my skill and I, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to pretend to be this macho guy that, oh, I did this by myself. No, I, I did this and I killed this deer because of the help of some selfless friends and, and, uh, anyway, so that was, 
a very long-winded story, but uh, that's the story of, of KK. Um, KK short for King Canyon. That's what my son wanted to name him. My son's name is Canyon. And when we were checking trail cameras that spring, he uh, we found the deer. And I said, what do you want to, what do you, what do you think we should call him? And he said, let's name him, let's name him Canyon. And I said, well, that's your name. And again, he's four. And he said, I was like, what, what if we call him King? And he said, anyway, we went back and forth and we ended up calling him King Canyon. And so I, for short, I called him KK. What an so amazing you... story, James. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, man, you've had me on the, the edge of my seat listening. I I just uh, I, I love your commitment, your dedication, dedication to the craft. Like, this is a lifetime's of work that that's come to fruition, you know, in in one season on one giant deer. And I I just love that you give credit to, to all your buddies for their health and their their selflessness. And um, man, it. It, uh, it, it was meant to be, and, and, um, it, it sure went to, uh, a deserving bow hunter in yourself. That is just absolutely amazing, man. I, I appreciate that. I, yeah, I couldn't have done it without my buddies and, and all the hard work. So the big, the big takeaway from this that I, I want people to know is I'm no different than anybody. I work 45, 50 hours a week. I have a one-year-old, a four-year-old, you know, my wife, this year was really hard with COVID and my wife was bottled up. And, but if you're willing to work hard and, and work, you know, you know, dial in your equipment, be cognizant of your equipment choices. It's very important. Get your bow tuned, um, make it forgiving, you know, don't be so caught up in speed. I know I've talked about a lot about that light, fast arrow, but forgiveness is more important than speed. Um, you know, but forgiveness is more than just, um, you know, a seven inch brace height and a long axle to axle. It's, it's how you design your arrow, what, what broadhead you're shooting, the tune you know, in it. the tune in it that, you know, all of that is forgiveness. The torque tune, you know, that's why I shoot the two arrows is because I feel forgiveness is, is shot, shot angle, quartering two angles, frontal angles. So I like heavy arrows for those engagements. And then for, for me, forgiveness on longer shots is ranging forgiveness. So, you know, all of, all of this other people can do. I'm nothing special. I'm not, you know, I've got friends that are way more skilled than me, but I feel like the reason why I killed this deer is because of a grinding nature, um, you know, sacrificing a lot of sleep, um, you know, I'm, I'm no sponsored hunter. I have a nine to, you know, I, I work a regular job. I work a lot of hours and I've got a young family and other people can do it. You just got to, you got to set your mind to a goal and stay true to that goal. And the other big thing that I'll, I'll just say here is I envisioned my success uh, from July 8th on every single day. I visualized me holding on that deer with my bow on my pin and executing a shot. I visualized it every single day. I made a and it's not just something that I did in passing every, every day, multiple times a day. I, I literally took a second to close my eyes and I visualized executing a perfect shot on this deer. And then I stayed true to that premonition. And despite, you know, odds completely against me with the deer dropping down into the timber that in the, within the last hour, 
I still stay true. I worked at it. I, and, and I was able to kill him because Ty made a really, a, a really great spot. And then I executed what I feel is the stock of my life and, and made the Hail Mary buzzer beater. I don't, I can't even find a more big buzzer beater than what just happened. <laughs> That's so. the buzzer beater of all buzzer beaters. Uh, <laughs> that is amazing. What it, it's just your dedication to the craft. It's living that bow hunting lifestyle 365 and leaving no turn, no stone unturned, you know, and, and whether that's your shooting, whether that's your setup, your gear, and, and also your fitness level. I know you're a trail runner, like getting up with lack of sleep and making it up the mountain day after day after day it it was a grind it was just your dedication to it and i you know finding a big deer is really difficult killing a big deer is even more difficult yet those those bucks they get so crafty and their instincts get so keen and so i love the story that you found that buck and spent so much time trying to kill him and and he won. He won a lot of the battles, you know. He he picked oh. you off a lot of the times and picked off other guys. And man, that that buck was crafty. And I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to to kill, you know, a, a handful of really good bucks, you know. But there's also been a lot of bucks that have gotten away too, you know. That I find a big buck and you get one chance and they disappear into secondary living and I never find them again, you know. And and that definitely could have been the case on that deer, but you stayed persistent. You went you know, a week without seeing that deer, you didn't settle on that 170 inch buck that kept cruising down and breaking up the does. Uh, you know, that there was a lot that had to go right for you to kill that buck. And, and, uh, man, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't be more impressed with your dedication. And I love that you preach that, that hard work and, and, um, uh, a dedication to the craft. And, and man, I, I just think that's it. I, I think that, that that passion wins above all else, you know, and when you have a passion and a love for something and, you know, we have our responsibilities and we have work and a responsibility to our families. But uh, I love that you said every day you visualize making that shot. And I, you know, I do some visualizing, but I think I need to get better at it, you know, as doing it every single day of walking myself through that scenario. You prepared yourself for the shot, got the chance, and you nailed it. And, and yeah. uh Man, I, I just uh, to to make a perfect shot and have that buck take you know one hop, two seconds, and be down. Man, that's, that is just so amazing. I, I just love hearing that story, James. I love hearing your story, and I love hearing you tell it. That's just amazing, man. Yeah, th- thank you so much. I um, you know, I think it's a I think it's a story a lot of people are going to be relate to, and you know, this was this was no. I know that Eastman's is all about, and you are specifically all about public land. You know, this was your quintessential, essentially OTC, heaviest hunted unit in the state, likely in the country. Um, anybody in the state can hunt this unit, and it was just through dedication from years of effort. You know, this deer is, I mean, public land, essentially OTC, extended archery, this deer was available to anyone. And the reason why I think I killed him is because of, you know, that dedication to the craft, just exactly what you said, just sticking with it, staying true to the dream. I didn't mention this in the story, but I had that 174 point at five yards at one point, um, literally cruised past me, uh, following does. Uh, and that's kind of, 
speaking a little bit more to that sedentary style that I've kind of adopted on the front where I, I do a lot of scouting and then I just try to keep myself in the zone, being still, keeping the wind right. It led to a lot of opportunities on a lot of deer um, that I didn't take because my goal was this one, but uh, kind of a different tactic approach than than your quintessential Colorado or Wyoming high country or Idaho or Arizona desert, you know, but, uh, it's effective and it's, it's helped me kill three really big deer on the front. And, uh, so keep in mind, you know, you know, listeners and whatnot, keep that in mind as well that, you know, not all hunts are spot bed and stock. Um, there are different, different tactics and you got to kind of use what the country gives you. And that's kind of just the tactic that I settled in on the front and it's, and it's worked well for me. So. Yeah, well, and that's thinking outside the box. And and us as as humans, our biggest asset is our uh, ability to theorize and to think and to come up with solutions to problems. And and you definitely have on the front and did on that deer, man. It's just amazing. I could talk to you all day long, but I've taken a bunch of your time, James. Uh, you got to come back on the podcast, and we got to talk more. But congratulations on a a world class deer and a world class deer that you put in the work for it. There was no luck about it, you know, and so uh, that's what what excites me so much about the story too. Is is just like you say, an average guy that has a passion for bow hunting and and is willing to put in the work and improve his skill set and have it all come together with one arrow, man. That's what it's all about. Exactly. Yep. 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 Spot on. Well, thanks, James. I've really enjoyed talking with you and really enjoyed meeting with you, uh, meeting you. Uh, I'm going to shoot you my number and then uh, let's keep in touch. And again, just um, just so impressed at what you were able to accomplish and so impressed by your story. Thanks, man. You you too. Um, I had actually watched your uh, mule deer hunt. um, uh, The one that you guys just released on YouTube. And and, uh, man, when I saw when I saw that you had uh, missed that first shot. I, I almost cried for you because I could see in your face, like you kept saying, like, do I give up bow hunting at this point? And I've been there. <laughs> I, I, I've been there. Um, the year before uh, I was using a, 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 a fixed blade and I had a really big bull, like a, like, you know, a three, three, three fifty, three sixty type bull. Um, uh, on the Wasat on the front again, um, as hard as deer hunting is, there's even fewer elk. So to find a bull like that, and I, and I botched a shot. It was a 70 yard shot. I was using a fixed blade and a, on that heavy arrow. And like you said, that's just not a very forgiving arrow at that distance. And I didn't execute a great shot. It felt okay, but it was a little breezy, a little steep. And I mean, it was a bull of my a bull of my dreams, you know, similar, very similar to that that monster bull that you killed this year that just mo- motivated the crap out of me. That that's kind of where well, we didn't even mention that. But that's kind of where this whole podcast started. Was I was in the the pit of dis- the pit of despair. Anyway, let me finish the that bull. I'm getting ahead of myself. That bull, I missed that shot. And it just devastated me. Similar to how you were in this video that that I watched that you just released it do I give up bow hunting? Like I practice all year long. I, I made a hell of a shot on that buck earlier last year. And then I can't connect at 70 yards on this bull on a, on a give me shot. And uh, so that, that's kind of where I came very true with the, you know, 50 yards and under I'm using that heavy arrow, 50 yards and over I'm using a lighter, faster arrow. That's more forgiving. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, kind of talking, I'd sent you that I just posted on the 
on that on, on your story that you or that your 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 post that you had made about that bull, you'd post a, a new photo of that bull, that ginormous bull that you killed this year, uh, which is a feat in itself, man. And I just remember thinking when I got, I think I got down off the mountain, and I can't remember where I saw it. I don't I don't know if it was on your page or where I first saw that bull. I think somebody else had, had shared it. And, uh, and then I, I listened to some podcasts that you talked about it and, and, uh, saw it on your feet, on your, on your story as well. And I just remember thinking you had said a couple of things and I can't remember if it was in the podcast or if it was in, in something you'd wrote on Instagram, but you had said that you basically dedicate your whole life, you know, your, your whole pursuit in life, um, you know, apart from your family, which is, you know, your primary pursuit was to kill a bull of this caliber on public land, high pressured. And I just remember thinking like, that is one hell of a bull. And he's right. He, you know, all of, all of those efforts are focused into that, that specimen of a bull. And I, I remember it motivating me thinking, you know, if he's right. You know, I've worked this hard. I'm going to stay true to this goal. So that's just a testament to social media and, you know, it's, it's good and bad, but I think there's more good from it because we all motivate each other and, uh, don't get, don't get jealous and don't get, don't get caught up in other people's success. Like use it as motivation because when I saw you hammer that stud bull, it was like, it's possible. He's right. I'm, pre- I'm preparing for this. And I can make it happen just like you made it happen on that bull. And so it's really fun because I, it was a distinct member. That was a distinct feeling that I had when I saw you kill that bull. So it's kind of fun to come full circle and we connect on the podcast and yeah. So it was amazing. Yeah. You, uh, you, you wrote me a really kind message stating that, that same thing that the, you know, that it gave you motivation to keep after the buck that you ended up harvesting. And, um, I, I had seen that buck and, um, you know, had, had, uh, thought about having you on the podcast, but then after I connected with you and I just knew, man, he is a bow hunting brother, just like me, like he, uh, uh and then to, to hear all your hard work and effort, I have just enjoyed this conversation so much. So yeah, thanks so much. That bull was a dream of mine. And, um, yeah, it, it's, um, it's it's so fun when it comes to fruition and it it does it takes years of dedication and commitment and um it it doesn't happen overnight and it it's a like I don't believe in a lucky break you know it's it's just uh it's putting in the work and, and then being able to seize that moment when you get the opportunity because of all the work but just amazing yep. James man this is a great conversation congrats again on an awesome buck and uh let's keep in touch yeah sounds good thank thanks Brian for the opportunity um and, and everything. It's been fun conversation. Really appreciate it. All right, guys, that's podcast. Man, James killed it, didn't he? I gotta, I gotta have him back on the podcast in the future. But you know, it's not only this giant buck that he harvested off the front. Um, he's a consistent killer. He's killed a bunch of good deer, a bunch of good elk. Killed him with his bow, muzzleloader, rifle. Uses all weapons. Takes advantage of all seasons. And uh, like I say, just a, a a good, humble guy, too, that um, I can, you know, it's no accident he was successful on a big buck. He definitely puts in the work, and, and he thinks about 
his gear in this in this critical manner uh, of really diving deep down the rabbit hole uh, of everything he uses and the reason why and finding the reasons behind things. I think it's so intelligent, and I know I learned a lot in the podcast. I hope you guys did too. I really enjoyed it. So uh, thanks again to James to, for taking the time, and I know I went a bit long on the podcast, so uh, I appreciate him taking the time out of his day and being on, and and also just these guys sharing this information that makes them successful. You know, there's this, you know, with with hunting and fishing, there's this, you know, it can kind of be a secret society, and 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 for good reason. It takes so much time and effort to find these good locations and these good spots that produce encounters, but, um, you know, it's. It, it's more than that. It's it's sharing this information that helps make us successful, and it doesn't take away from the places we have. And also, it's building these skill sets to be able to go out and find new places. So, I just I really appreciate guys that are uh, so honest and authentic, and 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 really, you know, give the information that helps make them successful on public ground to help you guys be more successful. So that's what it's all about is just building this hunting community, helping each other out. And you could hear the respect James had for the other hunter on the hillside and giving him his space and letting him hunt that buck. And, um, you know, it, it came back in the form of good karma as um, his buddy let him make the play on this buck and he was able to harvest it. So an awesome story, awesome buck, awesome podcast. I really enjoyed it. And again, I want to thank Sitka Gear as James is using their gear as well. Uh, I use this gear for absolutely everything. I mean, uh, just did a fishing trip over with Dylan Ness. It's just great fishing. Um, we really got them good, but you know, it's wintertime fishing cold and on the water. And, and it's like all I wear is that Sitka gear. It's just, uh, such great layering systems. And, um, I, I use it for all my hunts. I just, you know, I, I also use it for work and for fishing cause it's the best gear I have. Uh, so if you guys are in the market, you don't need to buy the whole system. Like it's just upgrading a piece of your system every year. So whether that's your hot weather hunting, your cold weather hunting, whether it's picking up, uh, their new insulating layers are absolutely awesome. Uh, they've got the puffy pants and puffy jacket. Um, they call it a, a Kelvin light, and uh, it's got the the insulating qualities of a goose down, but the 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 water uh, effectancy uh, of like a synthetic. So um, yeah, it's just great gear. I absolutely love it. So if you're in the market or if you're in the market for a new piece, make sure to check them out. And um, yeah, thanks to Eastman's for supporting everything. I sure appreciate it. Um, and man, that's a wrap. Get on here and talk about that New Mexico buck. So nice to cut loose and stay in the desert and decent temps and soak in some of that sunshine and just this this different habitat. You guys probably heard it on that Marlin podcast. I I hunt a lot of desert bucks. Um, you know, as I look back at different hunts I've done, but that that low density desert hunting is is this landscape that I really want to improve at, especially for these muleys. And so just dedicating myself and giving myself time down in that desert to go figure it out in different units and and um, just dial it in. So uh, I feel really good about harvesting that that good buck arrow and that good buck. And um, yeah, I just want to continue to work and and um, gosh, I just, uh, become the, 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 the best bow hunter I can. I just, um, I love all these adventures that we're able to do here in the States and I'm so fortunate to be able to do a bunch of them. And, uh, I just want to continue to live this adventurous lifestyle in 2021 and keep myself in, in good shape. And, um, 
man, take my shooting to another level and just be ready to go challenge myself in the mountains. Uh, absolutely love it. So, so fun. Um, time to start another year. Uh, hopefully the, the tag gods smile on us, right? So thanks, you guys, for the support of the podcast. It's just awesome. You guys sharing this podcast and uh, reviews and ratings and things of that nature. You really help this podcast survive, and I really appreciate each and every one of you. So uh, thank you, and uh, we'll check in with you next week.